following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John chapter 6, we're closing out this long chapter as I read verses 60 through 71. Have some concluding things happening after the events of the miracle of feeding the 5,000, Jesus interpreting that in spiritual ways, talking about being the bread of life, talking about his flesh and his blood being true food. Of course, we know he was speaking figuratively and spiritually, but what he had to say brought much offense. And now today, we're going to see the reaction, and it's, it's really all of the things he's been saying that are getting the reaction that we begin to hear about at John 6 and verse 60. Listen to God's Word. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is God's holy word. We all confront many times in our lives that are forks in the road. There are obvious times like graduation when you're moving out to do something entirely new, perhaps, with your life. There are many lesser times when change comes through a change of a job or family or home or circumstances where decisions have to be made. And you, perhaps consciously or maybe even by default, make a decision that molds the future in some way. It might be a significant moral choice or an immoral choice that leads you to steep and very treacherous terrain from that point onward. You know, we say there's no magic age, but somewhere by the age of 30 or your late 20s, most of us have made enough key choices in our lives that those choices have started to 
be hardening cement and our character is beginning to be defined for what it will be in the future except perhaps by some radical transformation of God's power. I trust that my tombstone one day will have words of Scripture on it, but if it had any non-scriptural words, I think I know what they might be. Non-scriptural words which contain great wisdom are from the poet Robert Frost, who said, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Wise words. We choose at many forks in the road of our life for where we will stand, what we will stand for, and what we will be shaped by. And today we live in times where we're being shaped by choices that we don't even make ourselves, but they're imposed on us. Some of us are astonished and bewildered at the way changes are sweeping across our nation. I understand that in some of the school systems of California, from now on, you decide as a boy or girl which bathroom in the school you shall use based on your own preference, and that's all, because after all, gender is just a figment of your imagination. It's amazing what's happening. And the poor choices, the even immoral choices being made by government It's as if we're on a rapid train and crossroads are flashing by the windows and and we we flash by this and we say, whoa, wait a minute. I didn't even have a chance to think about that and I'm already past it. And we want to ask, to whom shall we look in a time like this for moral guidance and stability and wisdom? Should we look to the president or to the Congress or to the courts? Should we look to the latest opinion poll? That seems to be where everybody looks because, after all, 60% of the people can't be wrong, right? Wrong. Should we look to the Word of God? Well, when you face a major decision, to whom will you go? For wisdom? For companionship? For guidance? Or even forgiveness? In John 6, Jesus, at the beginning of this chapter, we see had hundreds if not thousands of people pouring after him everywhere he went. You look at the Sea of Galilee and his movements in the first part of the chapter, and here he was teaching here, he got in a boat and went over here, and the people literally ran along the shore to try to get to where he was. They were so eager to hear him. And now, in a very short time, we find that a much smaller company will follow him down his chosen road that is moving inevitably towards the cross. A great sifting is going on as scores and hundreds of non-substantial disciples began to defect. Because in John 6, Jesus Christ spoke words about tough subjects, and the words offended And many would not have what they heard. They they said, that's it, I'm finished. In John 6, 60 to 71, there are several ways in which we too might be reminded that we stand at many different crossroads places in our lives where decisions must be made to follow Christ or not to, and sometimes even on a daily basis. 
First of all, I want to speak about the crossroads of believing smooth human words versus hard words from God. You see, that was the problem here. As we begin this passage, verse 60, people were saying, this is a hard saying. What did they have in mind? Well, almost everything he'd been saying in the chapter and before that. Things about his own intimacy with God the Father, the fact that he was equal to God, that he was God in flesh, that he had preexisted. Things that he'd been saying about his coming death. It's a very gory chapter when he talks about his flesh and his blood and eating these, these graphic images. We know they were figurative, and yet people were revolted at the idea that here was the Messiah who was saying, I'm going to die in a terrible way, and I expect you to share somehow in that death of mine. And then things that he was saying also, that they could not come to faith unless the Father enabled them to do that. That certainly offended people then, and it still offends people today. Actually, the word for hard that's here, hard saying, is an interesting little Greek word. It's a word that means to cut like a rasp. If any of you men are woodworkers, you know what a rasp, R-A-S-P, is. I have one from my dad's tools. I've never really used it, but it's a sort of a fearsome thing. It's a file with sharp pointed like porcupine teeth and you use this on wood and you can literally file away large quantities of wood with this rough file. You certainly wouldn't take a rasp and run it across your arm or something. You'd tear your skin to pieces, the kind of file that it is. Well, imagine that Jesus, they were saying about Jesus, these words of yours are like a rasp. They cut they wound. They're not saying that so much that they found it difficult to understand him. In fact, there's an element in which they did understand him. And it was just too abrasive to be tolerated. One of the commentators says this, I quote him, it was not that they found Christ's language so obscure as to be unintelligible, but that what they heard was irreconcilable with their own dearly held views, and they would not receive it. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the case many, many times with people's reaction to Scripture. It's not that they don't understand. They really do understand and they won't have it. You see, politicians whose main goal is to get elected and curry favor with voters speak in mostly what we call smooth words. Smooth words are the kind that don't offend. They rather impress. They build people up. They might manipulate. They might cajole. But smooth words from human beings are calculated to leave out all the prickly, raspy subjects. So people will be happy with your words and will want to hear more of what you have to say because you're telling them what they want to hear, not necessarily what they need to hear. Well, Jesus spoke words from the Spirit. You see the contrast here in the early part of the passage? He speaks of words that are of the flesh, that are of no help at all. But the words I have spoken to you, he said in verse 63, are spirit and life. And the implication is words that are filled with spirit and life have to cut. They have to be surgical. They have to enter into the need of a man or a woman and 
work on that person to change them. And we read what happened when words of the Spirit, these raspy, hard, abrasive words were heard from this time. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. What is a disciple here? Certainly it's the small d kind of disciple. It's not the twelve. None of the twelve left at this time. But maybe it even shocks you that a small d disciple could turn back. You say, wait a minute, if you're a disciple, doesn't that mean you're a real follower? Well, they were followers of some kind, but followers apparently that were not substantial and not authentic. And they departed in droves because they were unwilling to relinquish authority over their own lives, their own understandings. Bottom line, they said, my common sense will sift through. I have a filter that will filter the words of Jesus and tell me what is true and what I can tolerate. And if it doesn't get through my filter, I can't stand it and I won't have it. Don't confuse me. My mind is made up. Back in Jeremiah chapter 15, a speaker says to the Lord, when your words came, I ate them up. They were my joy and my heart's delight. That's a, that's a believer's response to the Word of God. I ate up your words. I was delighted in them. But you see, for an inauthentic person who's merely sort of hanging on, following the crowd, uh, enjoying Jesus for their own reasons, the same words might taste like drinking turpentine, and they say, I want none of it. You see, a, a true biblical gospel will repel false followers even as it attracts and draws the true convert, the true disciple. So I say to you, Christian, don't be quick to reject Scripture that paints your own behavior in unflattering terms and makes you feel uncomfortable. Don't squelch doctrines that seem at first glance or on first study to be too large for your own understanding or even in the second, third, fourth, and fifth study. You know, that's the problem with so many doctrines that people reject. They say, well, I investigated that once and it just confused me, so I said it had to be wrong. Well, there are many of the deep things of God in Scripture that are so much bigger than we are that... We have to come to them humbly and bow before them and say, this is the truth of God and, and my mind is rebelling, but I've got to, to humble myself and listen to this and try to understand it. Are we willing to have our human opinions surgically sculpted by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, which we're reminded is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword? Or are we the kind of disciples that say, I'm here to be entertained by the gospel show as long as it agrees with what I've already decided can be true. And so we end up revising Scripture to contain only what our common sense will immediately tolerate. Or are we prepared to submit before living truth that is bound to change us and bound to do a new work as it transforms us? Secondly, I think our text pictures a crossroad of either turning back from following Christ or pressing on to go forward with Him. You know, there are so many times when a Christian's daily walk can get discouraging, and you can begin to think, 
why is it I'm always seeming like I have to be going against the grain of the rest of the world? Uh, Last Sunday morning was one of the first times in a long while, certainly not ever in my life, but one of the first times in quite a while when I was driving any number of hundreds of miles on a Sunday morning. And, and, you know, just interesting for me because I don't spend my Sunday mornings on the road to, to see what everybody else in the world is doing out there on a Sunday morning and go past an enormous flea market where hundreds and hundreds of people are buying other people's junk. I don't know why, but they find it fascinating. And to go by shopping malls and find them thronged with people and, and go by campgrounds and, and, you know, everything. Just, and I say, wow, look at all these people. I wonder if they have any place for worship of God in their lives at all. And, and you can begin to, to get weary of, of sort of being the minority party all the time. Being the follower of Christ and thinking, well, why... Why am I so sure that I'm going the right path when everybody else seems to be going a completely different path? And this can get so bad, perhaps, that it causes you to think, maybe I better just throw in the towel and quit. I remember my freshman year experience orientation in college, and I've talked to other people who've had similar experience. I think college uh, deans pass this around and, and do it to a lot of freshmen. Uh, you know, get, you, get the whole incoming freshman class together and you're, you're given a little bit of a pep talk to discipline and good behavior and study habits and all that kind of thing. And, and in mine, at least, the, the, whoever the administrator was, I don't remember, but they said, now look down the road to, the, to this side and look down the road to this side and you don't know those people, but I'm going to tell you, one out of three of them is not going to be here at graduation. Are you going to be the one not here? And they were talking, of course, about academic performance. One out of three is not going to make it. Sobered me up, at least, I'll tell you that. And we face the fact is in this sixth chapter of John of this uncomfortable subject of defections from true discipleship to Christ. I try to translate it into the experience of our congregation and think about Westminster Presbyterian Church that is a healthy and growing, truly growing church. We've had net actual growth nearly every year for, I'm not even sure, I have to go back and look, 30, 35 years or more, probably more than that. We take in 75 to 80 members a year on average. Some people consider that phenomenal. And yet, in the time I've been here, the 20 years that I've been here, I, I, I've totaled it up. I've actually checked the book not long ago. How many, how many new members have I actually seen since I've been pastor here? The totals stunned me. It's more than 1,600. And wow, it was a 700-member church when I came, so it's a 2,300-member church, right? No, it's a 1,200-member church. Well, of course, some people died. And, of course, some people moved to Ohio or Oklahoma or someplace and went on to different things and had changes in their lives and aren't here anymore. But that doesn't completely account for the difference. And you say, well, wait a minute. Shouldn't there be hundreds more who are still a part of our congregation? Where, where are they? Well, you could call up our membership care committee. They check this out. Some of you had calls perhaps from membership care because they've noticed you haven't been here for several months and they called to say, hey, we've, you know, you're missed. 
we want, we'd like you with us. Where are you? And, oh, people mumble all kinds of excuses. And, but for one reason or another, they've gone. Now, I'm not trying to tell you for a moment that those people are automatically not true disciples of Christ. There may be very good reasons why they're somewhere else. But on the other hand, they may be folks that are simply fickle, admirers of the Christian show that's going on at any one of many different churches, and they're moving about, checking it out, and they'll soon move on and check it out somewhere else. We have a lower attrition rate, actually, than most churches do by far. So uh, this isn't somehow a message about unfaithful members of our church, but it's about what some people call the sunshine patriots. You know, those who are ready to charge into battle, but then comes months of training and boot camp and somehow battle loses its glory. Jesus lost a lot of people who at one point had been called disciples. And it's sobering to realize that in every church of Jesus Christ, there are nominal people who are there for some reason looking for something. Maybe they seem sincere. Maybe they are sincere. And ultimately, of course, only the Lord knows who are truly His. But come the challenge to do the hard things of the kingdom, to serve, to persevere, to stand tall for truth, they're not found. Charles Spurgeon, more than a century ago, said in a sermon once, there's a constant winnowing and sifting going on among the nominal adherents to the gospel. He said, the chaff is always being separated from the grain and blown away by the breeze. Now, we can congratulate ourselves. After all, we're here on Sunday morning, so We must all have passed the test. We must all be those who persevere when others don't. But before you pat yourself on the back too hard, just take a look at this passage and realize that Jesus turned to the twelve, the inner circle. And he said to them, as I would say to you, do you too want to leave? Because, you see, he knew what was inside them, and it's revealed here in a in a parenthesis, and, you know, a, a now we know what we didn't know at the time he said it. Parenthesis begins in, in verse 64, go through the end of, or it's all of 64, I guess, most of 64. He knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who would betray him. So he knew. He knew that there was one there who was actually already possessed of the devil. And so he directs his charge to those of us who would at least appear as if we're persevering. We're the inner circle. We're the active ones. And he says, look, the challenge comes to you. Are you going to choose to stand with me or to turn back? Because, you see, following Christ is not simply a -a once-in-a-lifetime decision that you make at the age of 8 or 10 or 12, and then you profess your faith and join the church, and, and great, you just coast along. It is a constant series of decisions almost daily to confess Jesus as Lord in your actions, in the way you speak, in the way you treat people, in the way you conduct yourself in this world, choosing to do hard things. 
Telling the truth over being deceptive. Being kind instead of being sarcastic. Forgiving instead of showing anger. Serving instead of asking to be served. Denying your lust, your pride, your instinct for pleasure, your selfishness. You see, there's always a path of least resistance. And it's almost always not the path of Christ. Indeed, it can feel at times as if a Christian is the person who's regularly driving the car the wrong way on a one-way street. And you want to say to yourself all the time, what am I doing? I must be going the wrong way. No, you need to make up your mind that all that traffic going against you is actually an indication that you're going in the right way when you're standing with Christ. Now, there's a third thing to emphasize here, and that is that Jesus confronts us with a crossroad that leads to ultimate destinations of either life or death. Our choices for Christ are not just temporary things. They're things with ultimate destinies involved. Every day, moral, spiritual choices really do matter. Now, maybe some of you say, gee, I don't really remember making any momentous moral or spiritual choices this last week. I want to say to you, that may be very good. It may mean you're a mature Christian, and your choices are basically on a kind of faith autopilot, and you're deciding right things because of Christian principles that have shaped you and the Holy Spirit working in you. And you don't have to sit down and ponder, should I tell the truth or not? But the younger you are, the more you're not on autopilot, and the more those choices are actual confrontations of conscience. I put the challenge to you, those of you that are students, any of you who are high school graduates or college graduates, high school graduates especially, you've got a lot of huge choices in front of you. In the next 10, 12 years, you're basically going to decide by a series of choices what kind of a person you're going to be the rest of your life. And you know, it can seem like, hey, I'm young. This is time to have fun. Uh, it, this is time to, to sample everything that's out there. Uh, and, and so if I don't sample it now, how will I ever know? So this is the time to, to find out what, why everybody thinks alcohol is so much fun. Or this is the time to sample sexual promiscuity. And you get a little older and you think, well, it can't hurt that much if I'm a little bit unfaithful to my spouse or I give a little bit of indulgence to that pornography on the computer or whatever it is. You know, these things seem like harmless little side detours. And I can go down the detour and explore it and I can always find my way back to the main road again. But you don't. The detours have a way of turning and turning and turning in the wrong direction. And they become permanent. And in case that sounds familiar, think about Matthew seven thirteen, where Jesus himself said, the broad way, there is a broad way, and it leads to destruction. But there is a narrow way, and it leads to life. And then he added, only a few find it. That always challenged me that he added that. There's a narrow way, and only the minority finds it. Choosing the road less traveled really does make a difference. 
Now, Peter spoke here for believers of all time who choose Christ at their crucial crossroads situations when he said, well, Lord, I see what they're doing, but who are we supposed to go to? In so many words, who else is there? Lord, we have learned this much about you. You are God's holy one. You have living words. Who would we go to that has that? It's one of Peter's most shining moments. He had some that were embarrassed by him, but not this time. Because here from Peter is a defiant assertion of faith and courageous hope as he might have wondered in his own mind, even as he was speaking, he might have watched those people walking away and thought, gee, maybe this really, maybe I ought to give this whole thing up. It's starting to sound risky. But he said, Lord, I can't see an alternative. I can't see anyone that even resembles you. Who would I go to? And so we ask you, to whom will you go? Will you plunge into the pursuit of materialism and building up financial and material success around yourself and somehow feel like you've built a little castle you can dwell in because you've got enough money to retire on or whatever is your goal? Will you pursue one of the many past established religions of this world? You can go study those. Many people are sure, oh, there are so many religions out there. Why would I confine myself to Christianity when there are so many different ideas? Well, go study those ideas. Please do come back and give me your report. I've studied them. The most boring study of my college philosophy major was the study of other religions. What a lot of dead dust. Muhammad is a false prophet. I don't care who that's broadcast to in the world. He's a false prophet. Confucius was a wise man with interesting things to say, but nothing more. Buddha projects from his cold stone monuments only pessimism, definitely not hope. You must, with your living soul, turn somewhere for meaning, purpose, and peace. When the skyscrapers of your great cities are being attacked by terror, when do-it-yourself religion is the the game that most people will indulge in today, when people are galloping like lemmings off a cliff in moral promiscuity to say anything goes in sexuality, we need to ask the question, to whom shall we go? And the alternatives are dreadfully bleak. If you will not go to him, about whom Proverbs 18 said, his name is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are safe. Why would you not go to the one who is the living embodiment of God the Father, the very character and heart of God's mercy, the fullness of God in a human body? Why not Christ? Why not the worthy lamb who alone was qualified to be slain for the sins of the world? Why not the only one who ever rose from the dead in verifiable history? Why not to the good shepherd, the bright and morning star, the lion of Judah? Why not have the backbone of Peter to say, I will stand faithful to Christ. I don't care if 10,000 stampede past me in the opposite direction. 
If you once embraced Jesus Christ as a child, as a youth, as a young adult with joy and fervor in your heart, but suddenly later in life, in midlife or older years, it seems like following him has become a rough thing. And companions who once seemed to be steadfast have somewhere along the way proved fickle, and Christian leaders you once admired have fallen morally, and you say, I don't know, maybe I can't stay with Christ. I charge you by the example of Peter to determine that at any crossroads, hour of life, at any fork in the road, your first response will be to turn and face Jesus Christ, for there is no other hiding place, no other castle in a storm apart from him. And I tell you with the full assurance of the Word of God and the proven experience of a lifetime of thousands and even millions of the saints of God, there really is no one else on heaven or earth to whom you can go. Thanks be to God, our Father. I pray that you give strength and courage to your people in days of the decline of our American society, in the days when millions are running in all directions without a compass and without an idea of where they're going or who is leading. We thank you for him whose words are life and whose very life and death are life eternal. And I pray for our young people. I pray for all of our folk at whatever circumstance of life they faced, that they will look at the alternatives and say there's only one to whom I can go. Thanks be to God that there is my Lord Jesus Christ. I go to him alone. Amen.